This is Mouth Media Network, audio for business. Hello, this is Mark Rako, and welcome to Fashion Is Your Business. Over hundreds of interviews on this show recorded on three continents and across the U.S., one of the most impactful to us was in Boston, Massachusetts, five years ago at the WEAR conference. It was about restoring vision and the possibilities of wearable technology. We were so moved. It has stuck with us to this day, and we'd love to share it again with you this week. Enjoy the show. From New York City. You are listening to Fashion Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the fashion industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fashion Is Your Business, recorded on location at the WEAR Conference in Boston, Massachusetts. And we've got a really interesting show for you today. We're here with Brian Meck, the CEO for eSight Corporation, which, get this, brings sight to people who don't have it through amazing technology. We're going to have a fantastic discussion with Brian and uh, a little surprise guest as well right here on Fashion Is Your Business. Oh, and by the way, the show starts right now. Hi, I'm Brian Meck. I'm the CEO of Eastside Corporation. What I love about our company is how we apply technology to change people's lives. They put on the glasses that we make and they go back to work. They get to see their kids or their grandkids or they go back to school. It's fabulous. Hey everybody, welcome to Fashion Is Your Business. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Rako, and I'm here with my good buddy and colleague, Mr. Rob Sanchez. Hey, y'all. Hey, Rob. And uh, with us is our guest, Mr. Brian Meck, the CEO of eSight Corporation. Uh, hi, Brian. How are you? I'm good, Mark. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How's Boston treating you straight out from Toronto, Canada, where you're from? Well, so far, so good, I have to say. Um, got in late yesterday, so just getting started, really. Uh, we're going to get right into it, but uh, uh, let's start with this. Can you give us a quick Reader's Digest thumbnail sketch of what eSight Corporation is about? Sure. At eSight, we manufacture uh, a pair of electronic glasses that uses the latest in technology, plus some custom design stuff that we've come up with on our own. Uh, it, basically, what you have is a pair of electronic glasses that allows people that are visually impaired to see much better, in some cases, uh, restore nearly normal sight to people that otherwise could not see very well at all. For example, we have people that uh, that see as poorly as 2200 or 2400 on the visual acuity scale. And if you've ever been to an optometrist and they've asked you to read the eye chart, uh, we're talking about people that can't read the big letter E on that eye chart from 10 feet away. And those folks get back up to 2020 when they put on our glasses. Wow. I have to admit, uh, we've seen some of the videos uh, that have been out there of people uh, experiencing that, that moment of transformation and, and illumination, literally. And uh, it's, it's very moving, I have to say. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, it helps all of us get up every day knowing that that day we could change the lives of, who knows, 5, 10, 20 people. Uh, however many people we get to give that experience to on a daily basis. It, it's really impactful. It's interesting, too, because people who get into innovative technology, I, I think the majority of them don't do it because they're like, I want to make me a bucket full of bucks. That's part of the motivation. But I think what gets people learning about it is what excites them about being able to incite change, real change, meaningful change. Yeah, I think, you know, anyone who's in the in the healthcare business has that sense, and, and certainly in other industries as well. For me personally, I've spent the last 17 plus years of my professional career in the low vision and blindness space helping to restore vision. So for me, I get jazzed about this stuff. You know, it, it really excites me. All right, we'll, uh, we'll dive much deeper in in just a moment. Just want to get a couple pieces of housekeeping out of the way. Uh, just a reminder, please follow us on 
social media, everybody, at Fashion Biz Show. That's Fashion B-I-Z Show. And, uh, of course, you can check out all of our past episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Store, and our very own website, fashionisyourbusiness.com. We sure would appreciate you checking it out. There's a lot of really great material there and interviews. And we have a lot coming up uh, from this conference and uh, from all the other things we're doing. So uh, let's let's dive in. Let, let, me, let me start with this, and I, I'd like to turn it over to Rob a little bit. I know Rob's and very eager for this <laughs> this interview. Uh, what interested you, Brian, about getting into this specific space? Why? Where did this idea come from? Uh, beyond a technological discovery, let's say. Yeah. So if we go all the way back to 1998, now this predates my experience with eSight. Uh, but I was at the University of Michigan. I was uh, faculty track doing research there in the nuclear engineering department. I thought that I was going to be an academic for the rest of my career. Uh, and then I got a call out of the blue from this Los Angeles-based company. Uh, and they were very cryptic about what they were doing. They, they wanted me to do some applied research at, at Michigan. Uh, but ultimately, they convinced me to come out and take a look at what they were doing. And when, when I found out that they were trying to develop a bionic eye that would restore vision to people that were completely blind, it, it caused me to, to pause and take a long, hard look at, did I want to be in nuclear uh, researcher for the rest of my life, or did I want to do something that was going to make a positive change for good? And I think everyone that's listening to this podcast understands implicitly, if they're not visually impaired, just how bad a visual impairment could be. It's the one sense that people value above all others by a long shot. Uh, and so if you lose it or it's impaired, it has a dramatic impact on your life. And so I made a decision sort of right there and then that I was going to dedicate the rest of my life to, to changing the outcomes for people with either blindness or low vision. Fast forward 16 years later, uh, I got a chance to talk to this company called eSight, which was in the process of changing the game altogether once again. They weren't ha helping people. They, we don't help people who are completely blind, but we help people with pretty severe visual impairments in some cases uh, get back to near normal vision and restore a quality of life that they haven't experienced in some cases in decades. And so that's been what I'm all about for the last 17 plus years. So when you're um, working on restoring the site, you were talking about people who were 20, 22,000, 24, or... 2,400. 2,400, 2,200. Yeah. Um, are you also working with people with astigmatisms and, and specific um, areas of the visual field that are impaired, or is it more about uh, depth and... Uh, near and far-sighted. So it's a good question. So we don't work with people whose vision can be corrected by, you know, standard eyewear or even medical treatment such as surgery. So if people have a detached retina, for example, they'll go see their retina specialist and, and get surgery performed. What we're talking about is people whose best corrected visual acuity with glasses, with whatever else they have going for them, is in the 2060 to 2600 range. That's sort of our sweet spot. And we're fairly agnostic as to the cause of that visual impairment. It could be retina disease. You know, most of our patients or our customers have retina disease uh, where the macular vision, their central vision is impaired, but mm -hmm. their peripheral vision is pretty healthy. But we have lots of other kinds of people as well, like retinitis pigmentosa, glaucoma, brain injury, eye injury. So we can help a very wide variety of people. Okay. Roughly speaking, there's about 3 million people in the United States and Canada that could benefit from our technology. And then are you changing what they see and what input is changed? Or how do you actually tackle the, the issue? That's a great question. So there's a couple of things that have been well known in the low vision space for a long time. Uh, one is magnification can make a big difference for people with impaired vision, and so can contrast enhancement. So certainly our glasses allow people to do that, but they allow people to do that in a wearable, portable way, and the, because the glasses are auto-focusing, uh, they don't just work at one distance. So you can be reading a book, you can look up at a menu, uh, you can make eye contact with someone who maybe is your barista at Starbucks, uh, all within milliseconds of each other, just the way a normally sighted person would. Beyond just the standard contrast, brightness, magnification, there are a few tricks that we play in the image processing part that we don't really talk about. They're proprietary that actually significantly enhance the visual outcome. Mm -hmm. So if someone were to take a pair of augmented reality glasses, for example, or virtual reality glasses, they wouldn't have the same outcome 
as our glasses produce. Plus, they'd have the additional problem that uh, because of the latency or what's called the lag time in the what's called the motion to photon time between when something occurs and when it's actually perceived from the glasses, uh, that that causes severe disturbances to your vestibular system, which it, that's the motion sickness that you, motion yeah. sickness that you experience yeah. with virtual reality, and in some cases with augmented reality. Okay, yeah. um, and then are are you also working? So if if I have a, a hole in the central vision and holes on the outside of, of the vision as well, um, do you change how the display is projected inside of the glasses? So that's a great question, Rob. Actually, when the company was founded back in 2007... That's a masterful question. Yes. Wow. Well, thank Very you. That's three in a row now. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he's going for his personal record. <laughs> so when the company was founded back in 2007, that was the plan. The plan was to take the image and steer it only to those portions of the retina, which is the which is the 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 tissue at the back of the eye that actually senses light and, and makes the whole system work. They were, we were just going to focus the image on the parts of the retina that were healthy enough to produce an image mm-hmm. and not put any of the image on the, on the sort of quote unquote dead spots. Um, as it turned out, the problem, uh, once you, once you hit on the particular, uh, magic of a certain aspects of the image processing, the problem became much simpler for us, and we didn't have to do that. Okay. Um, so we have patents around that concept, but we actually don't need to do that. And then um, how do you interact with the brain's, I, I don't know if self-healing is the right word, but um, basically the learning that happens inside of a, a partially sighted person, um, as they interact with the world, they map things differently inside of the, the brain um, in some cases. How do you interact with those uh, bodily workarounds, I guess? I, I'm not sure how exactly to phrase that. But. So I think what you're referring to is the fact that when someone loses a sense, any sense, uh, but in this case we'll talk about, about vision, uh, that part of your cortex um, is usually recruited by the rest of the cortex to do other things, whether it's improve your hearing, your sense of smell, you know, it just augments your other senses. So very often you'll find that people who have visual impairments have a very keen sense of smell, very sharp hearing, uh, because mm-hmm. their visual cortex has been recruited to help the other parts of the system. So when you start to restore that vision, well, it kind of depends on how long that person has been impaired. If they haven't been impaired very long, the cortex hasn't been very heavily recruited, and they can typically put the glasses on and they see everything makes sense to them right away, um, and they, they can, you know, within minutes, if not hours, they're up and walking around and, and doing whatever mm-hmm. they want to do. Uh, for the folks that, that have been impaired longer, in some cases, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, it can be a little bit slower process. In fact, we've had cases where people will be able to look at letters and words and map out the shape but not understand what the letters or words mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that comes back over time. So the cortex gets recruited back to its original function. So you have to relearn, basically. So there's a, a learning process involved. Yeah, you're in basically learning how to see again. Okay. But I would say that in our case, you know, that doesn't happen very very often. Most, most people that lose vision uh, do so later in life. Not everybody. There are definitely children. Yeah. Um, but do so later in life, uh, and by then your cortex is much less uh, plastic, and so the recruitment can't really happen that much anyway. So. How much of what you're doing came from the discoveries that relate to the cochlear implant? Well, uh, at my previous company, that was a direct analogy to a cochlear implant, which we made um, a bionic eye, which was a cochlear implant for the eye. But instead of a microphone, you had a video camera. And instead of stimulating the, the cochlear canal, we stimulated the retina. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're doing here is very different. Yes. Um, we're using everything that's outside the body. There's no surgery. There's no medicine. Uh, people can try it. If it doesn't work for them, they don't need to buy it, you know, as opposed to an invasive surgery where things are going in your skull or your eye. Um, and you might find out you know, a month after going through all that, that it doesn't actually work for you. Um, we yeah. don't have that problem. So it's really not, uh, I, you know, if, if the bionic eye is the analog of a cochlear implant, then what we're doing is the analog of a hearing aid. So this is really a seeing aid. So right now what you've done is nothing short of miraculous and amazing, in my opinion. Um, 
which is, of course, one of the reasons we've asked you to be on the show. It's Thank really you. amazing. And I, I, I know you've been getting attention all over the place with this, which is wonderful. And you should. Uh, so you've got this out here now. And uh, I, I imagine that there are constant strides to say, OK, this is what we've got with it now. What do we do to make it leaner? What do we do to make it more attractive? What do we do to make it lighter? What do we do to make it more effective? How do we even improve what people are seeing and so forth? So without revealing any trade secrets and proprietary information, what can you tell us about where you're trying to take it now that it, it's out there, it works, and you say, OK, now, now what's next? OK. Great question, Mark. So, so let me actually back. masterful question. Yeah, masterful question. You and Rob are in close competition at this point. Okay, so um, let let me back up a second and talk about our philosophical approach. Um, you know, we way back when, way prior to my arrival, we elected. Uh, we, we we took a close look at what was available in the marketplace. We looked at. Um, at virtual reality displays and augmented reality displays and, and try to decide whether it was possible to take one of those off the shelf and maybe just change it here or there, tweak it here or there, and, and make it uh, something that was useful for people with low vision. And what we found uh, then, and it's true now, is that that's simply not going to work. Latency is certainly one of the issues. There's some other ones that are a problem, too. The, the cameras and the front end of the image processing is just not suitable for low vision. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what we did is we elected to develop everything in-house with the specific purpose of developing a product that would help people with low vision, impaired vision, see much better. And so we have the advantage now of having a team of engineers in Canada that are really sort of cream of the crop. I would argue maybe the best low vision engineering team that's ever been assembled. They are dedicated, they're empathetic, and they're, you know, they have a sole purpose in life. All of which is now, I'll answer your question. So of course we're working on making the eyewear smaller, sleeker, better looking, faster, more powerful, restoring better vision. We're gonna build in wireless capabilities, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. People can connect to their devices directly and have them on the screens um, or, 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 or use their apps that are th through their devices. They'll be basically connected. Um, and all of that is, is coming. Uh, you know, I can't talk about exact timing. I don't know the exact sure. timing yet. But can you talk a little bit about the decision making from the top, from the CEO's chair, uh, as you work with your teams, and you say, okay, when is a product ready to be released out into the wild? Especially if you know, and I'm not even speaking about your specific product in this case, but sometimes products say, look, this is not the prettiest thing in the world, or it doesn't do everything that people think it could, but it does enough that we need to introduce it to the world to, to put our stamp on it, to say we're the first in line, to whatever reasons you have. So I guess my question is, can you talk about the thought process that goes into when you pull the trigger on something and say it has been developed enough to release? We know there's more road ahead, and this is the moment that we're going to uh, say it's developed enough to release. Yeah, it, it, that's another masterful question, Rob, as, as they all are, I guess, at this point. <laughs> well, um, at least you accredited to yes, me. Yeah, sorry, yeah, so, sorry, Mark. So, uh, masterful question, And that's Mark. all the time we have. So. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, so, yeah, I think I'll get to the specifics of the answer in a second, but let me preface it by saying that I think you're never 100% sure, especially when you're in a new space, nascent technology, you're never 100% sure. You know, it's almost like I have a fear of heights, and I remember being in Jamaica up on this cliff, and I had to jump off because there was no way I could turn around and walk off because my legs were shaking so badly. And I was preparing myself to jump, but ultimately, you know, the, the split second when I jumped, I, there was no re rhyme or reason for it. I, you know, I just, I jumped. Now, all of that to say that at some point you've got to jump. We sure. did have technical criteria that the device had to meet, you know, from a reliability standpoint, from a quality standpoint, and from a performance standpoint. Uh, our performance metrics that we needed to satisfy was, were around reading and face recognition. And, and so we satisfied that. And of course, there's always more that you can do. And whenever you're engineering a product, whenever you have a product that is engineering driven, there's always more that the engineers want to do. But we decided to push it out. And we had a very good experience because what that does is that instead of getting engineering feedback on 
what your product should do. You get feedback from your actual customers on what they want. They want it lighter. They want it more comfortable. They want it better looking. Actually, we don't get a lot of feedback about it doing more for them visually because it does so well already. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, facial recognition inside of the software. Um, we have a, a team member who's face blind. I'm wondering if you've thought about using this for um, things that are not visual impairment but are other cognitive disorders outside of but are still visual related. No, the short answer is no, we haven't. We have thought about using the technology, the platform for other applications, but not related to even healthcare, never mind other senses or, or visual outcomes. So, no. And just to be clear, it's not that there's face recognition software running, although there is that capability in the system. Um, people are actually recognizing faces themselves. Okay. Yeah. And then um, I, when you were talking about Wi Fi and, and other enhancements to the devices. Are you thinking also about sharing out to, say, a a partner or a caregiver or someone like that as well? Absolutely. Uh, It it has lots of applications. First of all, in our in, in the training of someone. So, so for the folks that don't kind of get it right away and need some training, there's people in the United States called low vision rehab therapists or occupational therapists that actually do that training uh, with the person, teach them how to use a new device like this. Uh, so for them, it would be great if they could see, you know, on a remote uh, monitor or iPad, what the person's looking at. Um, mm-hmm. So that that's just one feature. Broadcasting out what you're seeing or experiencing is, you know, this is essentially a GoPro sort of feature, but in real time, uh, so people can share your experience with you. Yeah. Can you talk about the, have you considered where technologies that have been developed for this product may have implications elsewhere? And uh, I realize there may be some things you can't talk about, but um, what have been your thoughts about, okay, we developed this, this is where else th- this can exist. Yeah, we certainly have thought a lot about that. And, and some people have done that thinking for us. So we've had lots of folks approach us uh, recognizing that our platform could be used for an application that, frankly, we've never dreamed about. Um, and rather than talk about the specific applications, what I could talk about is what makes the product unique compared to other head-mounted displays. Okay. Uh, one is the low latency that I talked about, that everything right. happens very quickly. Mm. Uh, two is the fact that it's bioptic, which means it, the displays can be tilted up and out of the way. So you can use your normal vision, if you have it, uh, coupled with a display that could be presenting information from a completely different source. Uh, your hands are free. It's light. It's portable. It's wearable. So you can think of uh, a number, potentially you could think of a number of applications that would, that would where people would like to have all of those attributes and, and a few more that we have. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we'll be speaking more with Brian Mech, the CEO of Eastside Corporation, right here at the Wear Conference in Boston, Massachusetts, on Fashion Is Your Business. Don't go anywhere. Have you taken a look at StoryDot yet? Every brand and every product has a story to tell. And you can't successfully sell that brand or product without telling the story. StoryDot delivers your story wherever you want it to be heard. You can meet your customers at each point in their journey, connecting the dots between your business and the consumer to enhance engagement, experience, and conversion. I encourage you to take a look at StoryDot at StoryDot.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-D-O-T.com. Welcome back, everybody, to Fashion Is Your Business on location at Wear Conference in Boston. We're with Brian Mech of Eastside Corporation. Brian, since your uh, product is not so much a wearable tech device as it is a medical device, it's considered a medical device, uh, why are you at the Wear Conference, which is largely about wearable technology? Interesting question. So um, we're in the section called Wearables for Good. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were invited to participate in the in the conference itself, and I took a look at the agenda. And of, of course, there's a lot of fashion related stuff, which is not really up my alley either, professionally or personally. You can tell, uh, <laughs> but clearly, uh, clearly, but yeah, thanks, Rob. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, but the agenda was interesting because there was a mix of the fashion related stuff and a lot of uh, not just in the wearables for good section, but a lot of medical device companies were presenting as well. And I thought I was pretty curious about what they have to say. And it was one of the reasons I'm cutting this interview off at 11 o'clock. Yes. Plus, aside from all of that, Boston is wicked awesome, right? It is wicked awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so of the companies here, what what have you been looking to get out of that? And then also, what is something inside of the medical device field that you're excited about that's outside of what Eastside is doing? Well, there's a lot of innovation going on in medical devices right now um, and a lot of consolidation in the industry. But but coming back to the innovation. So, so here at the meeting, for example, there's some big medical device companies like Medtronic, and they're going to present shortly, and I'm, I'm really anxious to see what they, what they have to say. Uh, but in general, you know, the biggest problem facing... Uh, the U.S. and, frankly, most of the world mm-hmm. right now is diabetes. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of really uh, innovative stuff going around uh, in the area of di- diabetes right now that, that, that excites me from a personal perspective. Uh, of course, in the, in the vision space, it's actually pretty amazing to me how little innovation there has been. I've been a part of the only two companies that I think uh, have commercial products that actually restore Vision. There are, there's a few others that are that are in the research stages now, whether that's gene therapy or stem cell therapy, and hopefully those will pan out over the course of the next decade or two. But uh, it's remarkable to me how little there has been in restorative therapy and vision for quite a while. We were, or I was, I, I don't think Mark was there, um, at a panel where VSP was talking about some of the things that they're doing. And um, they were talking a little bit about the use of data to help... Um, help with the site uh, use of haptics to help with guidance for people who are blind and so on. And it sounded to me like there is a lot that they're not talking about um, because there's bigger markets and, and so on. And, and I'm wondering if you can address that a little bit too. So you mentioned that there's 3 million potential users for the brand and, um, or for, the, for eSight. And then also uh, some of the statistics we were looking at online, it's 84% of uh, people who are categorized as um, partially sighted are in your realm, uh, right? So, yeah. so, so I'll give you some demographics. The um, so um, you know when when the statisticians talk about the word blind, uh, they mean all people with visual impairments, sort of uh, legally blind. Anyone's it's sort of worse than twenty over sixty acuity. Um, only 14% of those people are actually blind, give or take. So mm-hmm. 86% of all the people that are visually impaired or, or labeled blind actually have some vision left that can, that can be utilized for, by a device like ours. So that means 3 million people in the United States, another half million people in Canada, give or take, and 47 million people in the G20 countries alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you talk about specific causes of blindness, well, the, the leading causes of, of uncorrectable low vision is is macular degeneration, oh, yeah. but hot on its heels now is diabetic retinopathy with the you know with the uh, with diabetes running rampant around the world, not just mm-hmm. in North America. Uh, diabetic retinopathy is fast becoming the leading cause, and, and you know for us at Eastside, we can help both of those conditions very well, as well as many many others. Mm-hmm. Does your technology respond to? condition or is it simply um, a user is able to tune it themselves? So the user does tune it themselves. Originally, again, we were planning to have to adapt it for conditions. And in fact, we have uh, some research going on in that area right now to see if we can get by by pre-tuning it ourselves, if we can get better outcome for certain conditions. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's almost like plug and play. You can put it on, the user will tune it, you know, a user like Yvonne will set the contrast where she wants it and she'll set the magnification and the brightness. And that's what works for her. And then if her eye condition uh, gets worse, she might adjust those parameters over time, but, you know, relatively slowly. Okay, so then you're, is there a different set of problems that you have to tackle when you're tackling a diabetic-related uh, degeneration versus macular de- degeneration? The way that it, the, the vision loss uh, features itself is, is similar enough that we don't have to tackle the problem separately. Um, and, in fact, there's a whole host of – there's probably 20 different eye diseases that we've had success in. Um, and, and like I said before, brain injury, eye injury, other causes as well. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, it's off the grid questions right here on Fashion is Your Business at the Wear Conference in Boston, Massachusetts. Back right after this. Culture starts at the top and great customer experience, the only competitive strategy in today's world, is fueled by great leadership. We hear and read this every day, but many brands don't drive customer-first strategy. For those at the top who want to make that leap but don't know how, we'll learn from leaders who share what you must do to become customer-centric. I am Liliana Petrova and this is The One Thing. The One Thing, Customer Experience from the Top, is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever the best podcasts are found. Welcome back to Fashion Is Your Business, and it is time for... It's time for Questions Off the Grid with Fashion Is Your Business. That's right, Off the Grid questions where we ask questions, frankly, off the grid. Neither Rob nor I knows the questions we're going to ask. We don't know what each other's going to ask, so it's going to come uh, right out of... And I'm just going to spin the grid of Wheel Destiny, which only has two spots on it today. And it arrives at me, which has given Rob a moment of reprieve <laughs> to think of his question. And uh, so uh, my question... For you, Brian, is this, um, what is a moment that you remember earlier in your life, since what you're doing is so, um, well, you said this is uh, technology for good. So what's something you remember early in your life that gave you a sense that you had done something good? Well, let me let me turn the question around a little bit, Mark. What I'll do is, is comment on something relatively early in my life that, that made me become sort of an engineer with the goal of doing something good. Love it. Okay. So I was, uh, I was in eighth grade, middle school, and um, I, I, I pretty much figured out by then that what I wanted to do with the rest of my life when I grew up and graduated was become a truck driver. Um, little did I know at that point that I was a prone, uh, prone to falling asleep when I drove long distances, but <laughs> nevertheless, all of that changed regardless when I read a book by Jules Verne called the mysterious Island. And in that book, there is a civil engineer by the name of captain Cyrus Harding. And yes. if you don't know the story, this group of people get stranded on an Island. It sounds a lot like a television show that was on the air a couple <laughs> of years ago. Uh, and he basically builds a civilization because of his knowledge of engineering. And when I read that book, and if you've read it, it's a, it's a tome. It's a very thick book. Uh, but I read it start to finish in the space of two days because I, I thought it was amazing. And, and that character inspired me to become more than a truck driver and, in fact, become an engineer. Now, as it turns out, I, I wasn't a civil engineer. Uh, I was an aerospace engineer but for my undergraduate work. Um, but that was really that was a life changing moment for me, and I remember it to this day because I really, you know, in eighth grade, I decided what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Awesome. I love this segment. <laughs> Rob? Um, I like to also talk a little bit about early childhood and education. And um, I'm, I'm wondering a little bit um, if you could just pull up a memory, your earliest memory from school, and what it was that, um, that brought you alive inside of a classroom, and then also what brought you alive outside of it. So whether it's sports or... Uh, anything like that. Yeah, in my earliest childhood memory of school and what brought me alive was Oreo cookies. Oreo cookies really brought me alive. And <laughs> obviously, <laughs> on my first day of kindergarten, I didn't realize that the plate was, you know, intended for everyone. And so my friend, who was also named Brian, and I uh, ate all of the cookies on the plate, which was about 30 between us. <laughs> so that, that really did bring me alive. That's my earliest memory. Um, outside of school, yeah, I was, I was, I was, uh, really into sports. So I played football and I played baseball. And uh, apart from that, I, I had a real thirst for knowledge from when I was very young. So I read a lot of books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what was your favorite genre? Um, well, uh, when I was when I was young, it was like mysteries, like the Hardy Boys and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Uh, as I grew older, uh, it was 
it was fiction in general. There was a Stephen King year where I was really into Stephen King. I remember that. Uh, but I haven't read him in a long time. Great. All right. Well, uh, what a great interview. <laughs> I have to tell you, we covered a lot of ground. And, uh, you know, again, Brian, uh, congratulations. I think what you guys are doing is just one of those things you say, this is why innovation and research is important because it can solve things that were never solved for centuries and then suddenly they are. Yeah. And, uh, and knowing that you're really at the beginning of the road yeah. and so much more that can be done and, uh, you know, it's, it's just amazing. I think about the first time we had a computer and that was a miracle and that took up a whole room or building and obviously now that's tiny and that was in a very short space of time. So I can only imagine what is around the corner with the things you guys can develop. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I, I remember the Commodore 64 and, and how that changed my life as well. Uh, the, one, the one comment I'll make is that short of being a professional baseball player, you know, there's not many jobs where you wake up every day and you're excited to go to work every single day. And I can literally, in 17 years, I can count on one hand the number of days I've woken up and thought, oh, I just don't want to go to work today. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really exciting. I, I'm super jazzed about everything that we do and the people that we help. And it's just a great thing to be doing and a great use of technology. How can people connect with uh, eSight or with you or however you want the public to reach out? Yeah, I think the easiest way is to go to our website, eSightEyewear.com, all one word, uh, and feel free to reach out to me. Uh, you can use my first initial B, my last name, Mech, M-E-C-H, at eSightEyewear.com. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, Brian Mech, the CEO of Eastside Corporation, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, what, what a great conversation. And good luck with the Wear Conference. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Rob. You guys have a great conference, too. All right. Before we say goodbye to you, we, uh, we thought it would be really awesome. You may have... Uh, of course, heard Brian mention someone named Yvonne that was uh, in the room with us. And actually, uh, with us on mic is Yvonne Felix, uh, who is actually wearing and using one of the eSight eyewear devices. And uh, welcome, Yvonne. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. So let's start here. Uh, what is your connection with eSight uh, other than the fact that obviously you uh, have, have a need and, and do use the device? I actually hounded the company to have me be a part of their team because I was so overwhelmed by how it changed my life that I wanted to change the lives of others. So I got involved initially with helping people fundraise. And from there, I went from giving feedback to engineers to connecting and training people with the unit and basically anything else that they asked me to do. I would just I was so enthusiastic about being involved. What, what is your personal background uh, unrelated to eSight? I'm actually an arts educator. Mm -hmm. I went to art school for four years to learn how to communicate with other artists visually. Uh, so before this, I used to teach people with low vision or blindness art. Uh, I've done a lot of sculptures, so arts and education. What kind of sculpture? Uh, Large-scale installations. So a mm -hmm. couple that are standing right now is one that's a magnifying glass that is actually a sundial that as the year, uh, from month to month as the year goes on, a, a carved stone in the pavement circles in a linear line towards the door of a police station in Hamilton, Ontario. Okay. That sounds really cool. <laughs> Do you mind if I ask you what the nature of your... Um, I don't know how you describe it, condition with your eyes? What would be the proper way to state that? Uh, it's my disease or my my visual impairment, I guess okay. would be the way you would say it. Would you mind if I asked you about the nature of your visual impairment? Because I think it's obviously contextually relevant. Yeah, absolutely. So I have something called Stargardt's disease, mm -hmm. which the the individual that founded eSight, his sister also has that eye disease. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's a central blind spot when I tried eSight, my eye disease was at 2,400. So I had 98% of my visual field missing, and it was a central scotoma. Over the years, it is still uh, degenerated. So it's a de degenerative disease that started when I was probably about four. 
and I found out about it because I was hit by a car when I was seven. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's oh been a lifetime career. <laughs> <laughs> now you're using an eSight device, and when did that uh, come into your life? About four years ago, I had actually I remember the date. It was April twenty third, two thousand and twelve. So you kind of don't forget these things. (laughs) Uh, One of the engineers actually came to my home, and I remember someone calling me from an organization that I had helped fundraise for a cure with for several years, and they said, there are these glasses. They're supposed to be for people with Stargardt's. Do you want to try them? And I I asked, is it a surgery? No, apparently you're just supposed to put them on. And my reaction was like, ooh. Okay, this absolutely this sounds like it's going to work. <laughs> so I, you know, I thought I have nothing to lose. There's no surgery involved, and I had just actually brought home uh, my son, who my youngest son, who was two months old. Uh, he was born mm-hmm. premature, mm-hmm. and I had a five-year-old, and I'd been married for eight years. And so there were people in my life, in my home, I'd never seen before, and. Mm-hmm. I remember him explaining things to me, telling me, you know, you're going to put them on. This is how they work. And I had very little knowledge of robotics engineering or technology in depth that way. And I was nodding my head. Sure, that sounds great. Just put them on. And I put them on. And I just remember looking up my husband saying, you know, what do you see? And I was so stunned because for, you know, almost 30 years of my life, I had seen a scotoma. And Mm -hmm. I didn't see a scotoma. I saw detail and faces and I saw my husband holding my two-month-old and a picture a print in our house that I had hated for years and I actually realized oh it's not that bad and I I saw my you know my five-year-old son on the side at the time I saw eyes so I saw I saw things where there was nothing before except shapes and kind of shadows oh wow how has did your experience using this for the first time and, and what it was able how it was able to transform your life compare to the reactions you've seen from other people over time do you do you feel that the reactions are similar do you feel that uh, they're very unique in each case what what have, what have you discovered as you've observed that it's actually very interesting because in on one side of the spec the at one end of the spectrum Uh, There's an instant connection because low vision has a language and it's it's very different, excuse me for saying this, but from the sighted language. And when you have individuals like myself who have had low vision, either born with it or developed it as a child, and then you have the other end of the spectrum, individuals who have had sight for 40, 50 years of their life. And now they're being thrown into this language to learn and to adapt to universally the experience is all the same you are seeing something so you most of the time well 99 all all no I'm not going to joke 100% of the time everyone's overjoyed the feeling of joy and relief and there's something here that's going to help me Uh, for each individual it might be different so the experiences are different but that for someone that um you know, I didn't understand what it meant to be 40 years old or 50 years old and develop, develop macular degeneration. I used to think, you know, get over yourself. Like, what are you complaining about? There's no big deal, but I, I've lived with this my whole life. But then I started to realize the amount of independence just from losing your license and to have your whole ta- world taken from you. Uh, the one thing I have learned is I studied my entire life waiting for the day to non-verbally communicate. So I had, I had no idea what nonverbal communication, making eye contact, actually looked like. Mm-hmm. But I read it in books. I, you know, I, I read um, anth- things about anthropology, and I read um, you know, a lot about biology, human biology, mm-hmm. and how we physically react to just looking at someone or smiling at someone. So I was preparing for this my whole life. And then when it actually happened and someone smiled at me and I smiled back, you kind of got this... Oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm doing it. Yeah, it's interesting. I never really considered the fact that solving an issue like this can, um, it doesn't just change that person's life, but it changes everything that they touch. And the people, the people around them can be understood more or have more of an opportunity or engage with you more or get more out of you or yeah. give more to you. Or there's so many things that, that I hadn't really thought about the sort of, Reverberation, the butterfly effect, if you will, of something like this. It's amazing. Uh, 
how has having technology like this available to you, Yvonne, changed your own goals and objectives and the things that you think are possible in your life? Hmm. Well, I used to think that having low vision wasn't a barrier. It just kind of uh, helped me find the path of being an artist. So I thought I was going to be an artist my whole life. And one of the things that I started to realize is that I almost lived in an irrational place for a very long time where you're always emotional. So you're always feeling you're, you're listening to people to gauge whether they're angry or not. And, and that kind of existence, you know, it translates to a, a, a physical, um, being when when you work in sculpture and I thought that was my only way to communicate and I really wanted to be a scientist when I grew up um, I'm 35 now and I have two kids and I'm looking for their future so I'm, I'm still putting that on the fence that's like my you know that's my retirement that's plan next, yeah. that's next uh, but I'll, I'll tell you something I wasn't expecting to be involved in the metrics of what compassion can turn into or, or if there is, you know, what is a, a marketing plan or, you know, anything to do with the tangible world where there is, uh, there's something about the beauty of numbers because I, I couldn't see plus or minus signs and there was something about algebra that was terrifying and I didn't even know what a parallelogram looked like. And yeah. being a part of that world is, I, my whole world has opened up and the amount of people that I can help just just by giving my personal experiences. I love this because so often we talk to people who are doing, making solutions and we don't have the opportunity to talk with people who those solutions impact and how it might actually change their business or the world or both. Uh, Now, of course, one of the things we started with is how, how much art is a part of your life. Mm -hmm. So now that your visual acuity has transformed or, 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 or is able to be enhanced, How has that changed your own artistic self? Well, I've learned what colors actually are instead of interjecting the idea that there's theory to tonality. So I never used to really use color because I didn't really understand it. So for the first year that I had eSight, I would say, you know, that looks, you know, reddish blue. And someone will go, you mean purple? So... Being developing my language further has is something that's happened, but I never drew faces before. So any any of my past works, life drawing, um, any illustrations, there are never any faces. And one of the first things I did, and it was it was so hard to learn a new way of hand eye coordination, but I drew mm-hmm. my five year old son's face. Oh, mm-hmm. what's the experience of? seeing and translating to the physical world been like what's that um so you just were mentioning the hand-eye coordination Mm. is there a change in how you um, manipulate and interact now and what was that learning process like yeah so i had to rebuild my mind's eye so if just to put into perspective of what low vision kind of looked like for me was i i knew what objects were but I didn't know what they looked like. So a cup to you, you would see the, you know, the sun hitting it and you would see that there, you know, there's a solid rounded form and there'd be dimension to it. A cup to me was just the fuzzy thing over there that I have to avoid knocking over. So building a mind's eye, it's almost, I remember at one point I was at the zoo with um, our two-year-old and he was about, he was just going to have a meltdown. And I thought, you know what? I am going to have the same meltdown because you're busy over there building new neural pathways. And so am I, <laughs> because I've never seen a zoo like this before. So that, that process of building the mind's eye and then, you know, learning what it feels like to visualize mentally, visualize physically, and then translate that to something two-dimensionally was it's an incredible experience. Like I get goosebumps just thinking about it because yeah. it's, it's something that uh, it's like going to outer space, really. Wow. It reminds it's a place me you can of, only imagine yeah. and then, yeah, but then you're there. Yeah. And, uh, and you can only understand what it's like to be there if you're there. Exactly. Yeah. When my older brother was in grade school, I can't remember what grade exactly. Um, he got glasses for the first time and I remember him saying, Oh, that's what a brick is because he had always thought that yeah. a brick was a color and didn't understand it was a texture yeah. and an right. individual object. So, you know, yeah. uh, I actually really do appreciate this and on a much, much lower level. But, um, you know, at 40, 
uh, 48 years old, I needed to get hearing aids. And uh, I have such an extensive loss in one particular bandwidth of my uh, frequency of, of my hearing that it dramatically affects my ability to hear certain types of voices, and I can't really hear much in, uh, in a crowded room or a busy space. And I didn't really realize until the solution, you know, until I actually was able to use them, and they were programmed for my particular hearing loss, and mine is also degenerative, and, and not to compare, mm-hmm. but I'm saying I can appreciate the idea of that moment when it was first turned on. And for the first time in many years, I actually could hear uh, everything. I could hear my own girlfriend's voice properly. I could hear, I could be in a restaurant or a party and actually understand what someone was saying instead of pretending like I was involved. And the transformation that's made in terms of my own ability to interact in those situations, my, my ability to, uh, my expectations of other people, even in talking to my girlfriend, because I can hear her voice now. And before I had to look at her a lot more to understand what she was saying, it's changed even her communication. So I guess my point is I can appreciate how, but, but I will say this, and I think this is relevant to what we were just talking about a little while ago. Um, I'm sorry, I'm making this all about me, but, uh, I went kicking and screaming putting this solution in place because I had come to adapt to a way of being and gotten comfortable with that culture mm-hmm. and adapted to that culture. And it was such a slow change. And, and being willing to accept the solution was, be, was adapting to the fact that my life had changed, that my life had changed. And, uh, and that, taking on the solution meant that I had to acknowledge that. And I would imagine, so I guess my, ultimately there is a question here and that is, um, was there any sense of courage for you in being willing to make this technology a part of your life on an ongoing basis? You hit the nail. Is that the saying? Nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah. Nail on the head. Uh, there was, I didn't. Okay, so I'm the type of person that just jumps. I have the flight or fright thing. I'm pretty sure my amygdala, amygdala is like a raisin. Um, <laughs> I also barely have an edit button. So I didn't really think about the fact that there would be a massive amount of responsibility with this. So as as small as you know, oh, I can see dirt on the floor. Oh, I have to clean it now. <laughs> to so good a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> to the fact that I, I, one of my dreams, actually, all I could think about in trying the eyewear was I get to read to my kids. That's reading was mm-hmm. such an important aspect of, of gaining knowledge and, and connecting to the world, having access to information. And the so I, I had to learn Braille in as a um, an early teenager, a young teenager, because I just I couldn't see words anymore. And I actually learned to read by imagining it as Lego. Um, so words oh, wow. were very, um, you know, they it was like playing Tetris all the time, and that's I had never actually seen the spaces in between letters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are all kinds of secrets that I didn't even know I had. Mm-hmm. And, and and as you said earlier, like that um, pretending. Uh, so I spent a lot of my life pretending I could see, and I got away with it. Very, you know, yeah. I, was, I was pretty yeah. pretty good spy. Yeah. Uh, but the responsibility of learning to read. Yeah. was definitely and and oh I remember the first time someone when people I started realizing that people look at each other I had no idea people looked at each other and so people would look at me I'd be sitting on a bus and people would be looking at me and I'd be doing I'd be waving at them <laughs> and my husband would be hitting my hand down like people you don't have to acknowledge every person that's looking at you and so I had to learn um, you know not to be I guess courage is the word but not to be afraid of jumping in and saying, okay, I've decided to do this. I'm here. I'm going to experience it and good, or I'm going to make some mistakes along the way. And boy, have I, but (laughs) it's been such, it's so good. It's, it's been such a good experience. You know, uh, I guess this would be my last question anyway. And that is sort of, uh, jumping on, uh, another level to what we were just talking about. Mm. 
this can affect the personal relationships around you, uh, possibly simply for the good. Uh, but it changes the dynamics, obviously, let's say between you and a husband and clearly between you and, and, and your son. Mm. Um, without getting inappropriately personal, how, how did this technology and access to a new type of site uh, change the dynamics of your relationship, your personal relationships, let's put it that way? It it was like moving mountains. And I, I mean that um, in a good and bad way. So sometimes there were some earthquakes and uh, sometimes there were some graces. One of the things that I, and this is going back to the nonverbal communication. Nonverbal communication is, I don't even know how we ended up together because <laughs> it's, it's like a, it's a whole science, this, you know, your pupils and oh my God, when yeah. you make eye contact and like, God bless his soul, because I don't know how he put up with me over the years. Not that having low vision is that impactful, but, you know, I guess love is blind because a lot of the things that I had to learn is I didn't know what sorrow looked like and I didn't mm. know what anger looked like. And our um, the majority of our marriage, uh, and I think this is important to let people know about low vision is a, it cuts you off from communication. It really does because... I thought he was angry at me most of the time, most of our marriage. And then, you know, I remember one time we were having an argument and he said, I, I want you to put your glasses on so we can talk to each other. And I don't think I've ever told anybody this story. And I, I said, okay, I just thought, you know, for me, not having to look at people means I get to, I get to be self-righteous and I get to be on my high horse and I'm right. And then when you, when you can actually see how much something, how hurt someone is, and they're not, they're not in conflict with you because they have a point to prove or they want to be right. You know, in a marriage, especially you want to resolve things and you want to be a team and to see to see his eyes almost like in a very soft almond shape and kind of glossy and his, his pupils very, um, you know, very big and his face was soft. And I thought, Oh, that, I don't know what's going on, but that makes me up, upset, but a different kind of upset. So new data, pardon me, new data. Yeah. And that, that right there was a whole sensory overload. And I, I had to, he was talking and I was watching his mouth move and it was, it was almost like, you know, watching a, watching a movie. And I was, I was the audience. I, it was like a process art piece. I was, I was experiencing someone else's emotion visually and I was reacting to it. So yeah, it's, it's changed my perception of, you know, who he is as an individual in many ways. And, you know, seeing you know, that bottom lip that the younger one pulls out is, you know, having <laughs> the faces it's, it's that not, one yeah. pulls, like yeah. the little ducky oh, face wow. is so manipulative. Yeah. And my, my older son doesn't do that. And uh, sometimes I wonder if my older son, um, so my younger son has no idea that I have a visual impairment. He is like the most selfish person on the face of the earth. Let me get those glasses on and read. Uh, why aren't you driving a car yet? You know, I'm tired of walking. You know, I, I love you know, I love him to death, but he, um, I really like, yeah, yeah. And, but I like the fact that he doesn't, he doesn't worry about me. My older son, he, he, he worries still, yeah. still kind of worries. Is driving a car something that can happen for you? Uh, when the technology gets there, I'm, I'm sure it will be. Now you mentioned that your, your, your vision is degenerative and it's, it's, it continues to degenerate. Yes. Is there a point when you, you understand your vision may degenerate down to a level that even this technology may not help you? So just recently, um, you know, we were talking about different diseases. So I have Stargardt's, but I also have type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, I've had it for 25 years now. So I'm starting to feel some of the effects that even when you take care of yourself, you kind of, you know, over time, you can't avoid and uh, in January, uh, I started to notice the decrease in my vision. And it's, I, it, it did occur to me that, you know, maybe I will, I won't be able to use something like this one day. Um, but for the time that I can, I'm taking in as much as I can. The, the good thing is, is I didn't, 
I didn't have to stop working. I didn't have to start stop living my life because I woke up and it was like wax paper was over my eyes. Mm. Um, I could, I guess in the past I was, you kind of live in a, a place of anxiety, like you don't know what's going to happen next. And that, the anxiety of knowing that oh, I have a solution, like getting through an airport is a nightmare. If you have low vision and you're trying to read signs and you look like you can see and people are, you know, yeah. they're kind of standoffish. They don't understand. But even uh, took American Airlines to um, to fly in and I, I, fly by, I fly by myself. And there is nothing more satisfying than being able to say, walk up to somebody, say, oh, I have low vision. Can I get help? And they come over with a wheelchair and look at the wheelchair and go, oh, gosh. OK, you know what? I'm just I'm going this on my own and being able to use eSight to read the signs, to find my gate, to read my boarding pass. Mm -hmm. Like that, that's the type of freedom that I, I know I have. And so the, you know, the truth is anything could happen to anybody in their life at any given moment. And I kind of look like losing, you know, even though losing my sight is probably, you know, might be a reality. Uh, I can't, I can't really dwell on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting hearing you talk about even the communication between you and your husband. So um, I'm on the autism spectrum, and my wife is low vision. And I think that that pairing has worked very well <laughs> because um, we we have those some of those missing gaps in communication. So I can only imagine the, that change that, that happened. Um, one of the things that I find interesting with um, with my wife is that when she dreams, she still dreams with low vision, mm. um, even when she's able to improve it with corrective lenses or anything like that. And I'm wondering, and maybe this is in incredibly personal, but I'm wondering what the inner world is like as well, because it's it's interesting to see what we've learned and processed. I mean, for me. Um, because of the autism, my inner world is incredibly different than almost anyone around me. And it's more of a three-dimensional space without color and without form. Mm. Um, and I just think it would be really interesting to hear kind of if it's changed for you at all. Uh, yeah, and that, that goes back to the mind's eye. I'll, it's interesting that you're talking about that because my, my eldest son is also on the autism spectrum. And uh, he is, I guess, on the spectrum Asperger's. Mm -hmm. And uh, in raising him, I I was the only person that he could, like he was, we were, he's, he was glued to me. And um, apparently I'm the only person in his life that, you know, he'll talk to. And uh, I, I think it's because I don't make eye contact with him. Mm -hmm. So we, we were, I never noticed the things that a lot of people noticed. And it, it's interesting because um, when you're talking about inner worlds, my inner worlds, uh, it, it has changed in, because I'm now filling in blanks. And there's something about seeing um, humans anyways and in, in, in their true physical form and how it's just amazing how we physically react to form. And, you know, sort of how it how it transcends biologically, and I, I have to say things like um, being nervous. I'd never be nervous. I could get up and talk in front of a thousand people and just, you know, be myself. And I, I actually had to learn to kind of do that from a different place, and I had to learn how to listen and look at the same time, and that mm -hmm. internally. So I'll just to kind of put it in perspective. When people would talk to me, I would it would come across um, visually in my mind like typing. So I would, I would type out forms. So when someone would say, like, the, the cat ran across the street, I would see the Lego blocks, the cat ran. And then when I learned Braille, and, and this still happens to me sometimes when people are speaking, um, I see it as the physical Braille in my mind. Mm -hmm. So, But now it's really interesting when people talk to me, um, I see it as, uh, I don't see it. I guess yeah. that's the way I remember it was in February and I had kind of, uh, I wouldn't say a nervous breakdown, but I had this, I was closing my eyes to go to sleep and I just saw black in my mind and I, you know, I was traveling and I called my husband and I said, 
I don't know what's happening to me. I'm sitting on the couch. I'm feeling the couch. I'm not seeing the couch. And he's like, okay, you sound crazy. What are you talking about? And I said, you know, I'm feeling the couch, but I don't see it in my head. And I'm, I'm hearing you talk, but I don't, I don't see you talking in my head. And, and he goes, okay, are your eyes open? And I said, well, no, they're shut. And he goes, oh, well, Yvonne, um, everyone sees nothing when they shut their eyes. And I went, oh, what? He says, yeah, when you, unless you decide to imagine something, people shut their eyes and there's darkness and that's how they fall asleep. <laughs> and I went, wow. really? <laughs> so I learned I sleep so much better. You wouldn't believe, like, with de- besides the whole circadian rhythm thing, like it's, uh, that you, you are affected by with low vision, the, the, you know, shutting my eyes and just going, I don't have to think or see anything. I can fall asleep in five minutes. It's, it's incredible. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, um, uh, you didn't put me to sleep. That was fascinating. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Uh, thank you for joining us, Yvonne. And and uh, what is your actual connection to Eastside at this point? Uh, right now, I'm part of the fundraising team, so I help people afford the eyewear, and I also am the connection to the low vision community. Great. Right. Well, thank you for joining us. It was uh fascinating journey into your world and uh and your reflections on the world of others and uh congratulations on uh on on being able to have this in your life and thank you for sharing all of the personal stories thank you for having me all right awesome well that's it for this uh, really dynamic and <laughs> and intriguing episode of fashion is your business from where conference in boston massachusetts so uh for rob sanchez good night y'all I'm Mark Rako. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. This has been Fashion Is Your Business. You can follow our show on social media at Fashion Biz Show. That's Fashion B-I-Z Show. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and on our website, fashionisyourbusiness.com. This program has been a production of Open Source Fashion, Inc. and Fashion Media Center, LLC. No portion of the program may be reproduced or distributed without express written consent. This is your announcer, Peter Coleman. Thanks for joining us.